When Bill Bryson bought a Victorian-era parsonage in an English village, he soon realized that the people who built it would be baffled by the modern comforts and expectations that we take for granted today. You can write a very good history of the world by just looking at the things in your house. Bill Bryson takes us on a journey without ever leaving home. Pico Iyer finds something new to discover wherever he goes in the world. Everything interesting about those places is what I hadn't known about, and that's what makes it exciting. Pico looks for paradise in some of the most unlikely places on Earth. And Jeff Speck reminds us that redesigning our cities for people to safely walk and bike everywhere can actually solve traffic congestion. We design our cities around cars, and they are no longer good cities to live in. Come along for the hour ahead as we turn our cities into places we enjoy, find paradise in the flesh, and listen to walls that can talk. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Pico Iyer tells us what his travels suggest about where you might find paradise. And we'll reimagine our traffic-clogged cities coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with Bill Bryson. He found that the walls, as well as the windows, the stairs, the cellar, and even the fuse box in the Victorian-era home he bought can reveal how much our lives have changed from the times of our ancestors. Bill discovered a history of the world without ever leaving home in his book called At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Rick. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, this whole idea about learning more about your house to learn more about from where we came... It's just a, a great opportunity for a book. Tell us how chimneys and population growth have anything to do with each other. Originally, throughout most of the Middle Ages, from the moment that Anglo-Saxons moved into Britain uh, after the Romans withdrew, right up to the time of, of Chaucer, say, in the 14th century, houses were primarily one room. There was a type of house known as the hall house. And the house was the hall, and the hall was the house. And sometimes they were fairly grand, which is why the word hall still denotes a grand place in a lot of context. Things like Carnegie Hall, or the Hall of Fame, or the Halls of Montezuma, and so on. Because once upon a time, that was really a quite a grand space, but it was just one room in which everybody in the household, all the members of the family and servants and so on, all lived together and did everything together in, in one great space. There was a, one open fire in the middle of the room, and the smoke went up into the ceiling space and just kind of leaked out the roof. So the space up near the rafters was not usable in any way. It needed the invention of a, of a real good chimney uh, in a domestic setting to make it possible to kind of channel the smoke out of that upstairs space. And once that happened, then it, it very quickly occurred to people they could start to use that space, and the head of the household could build more private space up there. And it was from that point, around about the time of, of Geoffrey Chaucer, that people began, wealthier people, the house owner, began to kind of retire from his servants and move with his family into the more private parts of the house. And that's really when houses began to spread out and take on all kinds of new rooms. Isn't that the reason why chimneys helped population grow, is uh, people had more privacy? The two are not disconnected. And there was, there was greater privacy. I mean, you weren't doing these things in front of lots and lots of people. But it was still until quite recent times, it was not at all unusual to, you know, to sleep in the same room, have a servant sleeping in your bedroom. So an awful lot of... Uh, procreating was going on with at least one servant present. The whole idea of, of what constitutes absolute solemn privacy is really quite recent. I mean, it only dates from about 1800 onwards. So sitting on the toilet was even a, a thing you might do not alone. Today, if you go to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, just outside the back door, there's a two-seater privy, which um, the father of our country may well have used himself in company with uh, someone else. 
there wasn't the same concept of of doing these things alone in solitude that we have now. It began when the houses branched out and started having upstairs, but it took a long time for, the, for that to become established. So that's a fascinating thing that comes across in your book is how fundamental concepts like privacy, and it was really interesting to hear your thoughts on the concept of comfortable. There was a big change in the 19th century, wasn't it? Exactly. Uh, the word comfortable in the, in the modern sense of, of being relaxed and kind of comfy um, only dates from 1770. And before that, comfort was something that you gave to people who were injured or distressed or wounded soldiers and so on. But comfort wasn't something that you thought of. It just didn't exist enough that people had the idea of, of comfort in the sense of furniture or clothing or the way we use it now. And it's a really interesting thing that, that comfort is something that you would think people would strive for instinctively right from the very beginning. And in a sense, we have. But but most of the things that we have nowadays that make us comfortable really on, have only existed in any kind of abundance since the end of the 19th century. So comfort is a really, really modern concept. Bill Bryson's 19th century home is teaching us about the world right now on Travel with Rick Steves. It's an interview we recorded when his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, first came out. Bill's a dual citizen of the U.S. and the U.K., and he's won dozens of awards and honoraria for his books on travel, language, and science. His book about hiking the Appalachian Trail, A Walk in the Woods, was made into a movie starring Robert Redford. Bill's appearances over the years on Radio 4 have just been released as an audiobook. It's called Bill Bryson BBC Radio Collection. It includes his series on how Americans and Brits are divided by a common language. So your house was built in 1851 in a small town in England. In your work putting this book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, as you put that book together, did it occur to you 1851 is a great vintage for a house to be a rack upon which to hang all this information? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I believed so. Because, uh, for one thing, anybody alive in 1851, and the, the vicar, the rector who built our house in 1851, I mean, he lived until the early years of the 20th century. So... Anyone in that period, it was right It was right on the cusp between the old kind of medieval world and the modern one. The rector who built our house and moved into it, you know, he he was living in a world of horse-drawn carriages and candlelight and, and all of that kind of very old-fashioned stuff. But he lived into an age that had electricity and movies and the Wright brothers and skyscrapers and all the things that we associate with the modern age. So it was it was a period that was just on the cusp of of going from the old way of the world to to a new way. And never in history has domesticity changed so radically and so quickly. Plus, you were born on the centennial of your own home. I was indeed. Just a kind of happy, happy coincidence. And and the other thing that was uh, was useful or relevant from the point of view of the book was that 1851 in England was the year of the Great Exhibition, which was the first World's Fair. And the Great Exhibition was the first time that there was a kind of World's Fair that was devoted to the idea of household implements and the kind of comforts of home, the things that we uh, associate with as sort of fine living. And that was, again, it was a pretty radical idea in the middle of the 19th century. Well, you kick off your book with the chapter on the, the Crystal Palace, right? Yeah, and the Crystal Palace was this wonderful thing. I mean, for the short time that it existed in, in London, it was the largest building in the world. But, I mean, think about this, though. I mean, when I think of the Crystal Palace, they're just feeling their energy and their excitement about the dawn of the modern age. They was made out of, what, iron and glass, and they were able to build it on schedule, celebrate it, and then take it down like a big erector set? Yes, and it was it was designed by a gardener. It was said, uh, you know, Joseph Paxton, who was the gardener at Chatsworth House, a, a big stately home in, in Derbyshire, 
nobody could come up with a, a design that would allow them to build a large enough exhibition hall in the time available and to the budget available. And he came up with the idea of, well, why don't we make it essentially just like a very, very big greenhouse? Because he was a gardener. He was used to building greenhouses. And so that's what they did. They built a greenhouse. But it was a greenhouse that was absolutely enormous. It was big enough to hold four St. Paul's cathedrals. So it was on a scale that was colossal. It must have and just blown it, people away. They must have traveled from far and wide and just their jaws dropped at the wonder of this big glass and iron building. Yeah, well, nobody had ever seen anything like it. I mean, we're used to seeing glassy buildings now. I mean, you go to yeah. you know downtown of any big city and what you see is mostly reflective glass. But in 1851, you know, buildings were not made with a lot of glass. So this would have been doubly dusty, not just the scale of it, but the fact that it looked so light and ethereal. People often likened it to a soap bubble. But the symbolism of that being a transition between, you know, the old world and the modern age, talk about lighting for a minute. Yeah, well, something everybody should do. I mean, all people should do sometime. I did this myself when I was writing the book. It's a very interesting experiment. It's just draw all the curtains in a room late at night at home and light one candle and then try and live for just 15 minutes by the light of a single candle. Try and read a newspaper or a book or something. And you would be amazed. It is essentially impossible for us now in the 21st century to get by with one candle. It's just too dim a light, and it's a really, really annoying light because candles flicker. And so the light that it casts on your book or whatever is just completely hopelessly inadequate. And yet, you know, right up until the time of, you know, our great-grandparents, certainly, that was about the amount of illumination that most people had in their homes in the evening, unless it was a really big occasion or something. But most people got by with, if you were at home, you and your wife and children or whatever would sit around by the light of a single candle. That's all there was. Bill, when we're talking about chimneys, I think of an ingle nook. And when you travel, you go to these grand stately English homes and, and the fireplaces are big enough to actually sit inside of them. There's little stone benches on either side. Tell us about the ingle nook. Well, yes. I mean, the house I live in in England now, this, the house that's at the heart of this book, is like, like many English houses, is not very warm in the wintertime. The central heating doesn't work very well. It's full of drafts and and it's uncomfortable, and we we get by on the fire from open fireplaces in the two rooms that we live in the most. And you have to get very, very close to the fires in order to get warm. And, of course, it tends to make you very warm on the part that's facing the fire, but the back of you or whatever part is facing away from it is still quite chilly. So the whole idea of the Inglenook was that it essentially allowed you to, as it were, get into the fireplace or to be in a much cozier environment. It really was a necessity because... Uh, it can be really cold. The, the thing about fireplaces is that they're not very efficient ways of producing heat. They're really good ways of extracting smoke and getting kind of toxic smoke out of the room, but they're not very good way of producing heat into a room because most of the heat goes straight up the flue. Bill Bryson examines the Victorian vicarage he bought in Ramplingham, England, from the scullery to the nursery, and what that house reveals about how our expectations have changed over the years. His book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill's book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, was just released in an illustrated edition. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Bill, it's a fascinating book, and your conclusion was quite surprising to me and also fascinating. Tell us how our quest for comfort could actually take us a different direction. Well, we live in a very interesting time because we are able to enjoy all of the conveniences that you know, burning copious amounts of electricity and using up lots of Earth's resources provide us. We're very, very lucky in that. You know, we are all very, very comfortable at home. But we also know that the Earth is um, facing perilous times with global warming. 
And so we're in this, those of us who are alive now are in a, in a really lucky position that we can have all of the comforts and convenience that all of these that living fairly extravagant lifestyles bring us. But at the same time, when you look out your windows, you still see a very green, happy earth out there. We don't know how much longer that can continue for, how sustainable that is. So the point I was simply making at the end of the book is that we are in this position that we've worked very hard to make ourselves comfortable, but the very things that are making us comfortable could actually pose a long-term risk to the planet. What a terrible thing that would be if, if in the quest just to be ever more comfortable and to be able to wear a kind of summery clothing in winter at our own home, that uh, we, we ended up essentially ruining the planet. I have this fascinating image I got from your book of you standing on that little platform on the rooftop of your 1851 home surveying the estate of the vicar who built that thing so long ago. And, and it's so lush and green like England is today, 150 years later. Let's hope uh, somebody can stand on your rooftop in 150 years from today and, and see the same lush and green environment. Well, that was my, absolutely my conclusion of the book, that's, you know, hope we can sustain all this. Bill Bryson, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Best wishes. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Rick. It's been my pleasure. We'll explore how the design of the cities we live in might be making us sick and cranky. Urban consultant Jeff Speck tells us what it takes to become a walkable city in just a bit. But first, Pico Iyer tells us how his travels to the far corners of the earth might have led him to paradise. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What does paradise look like for you? Pico Ayer's travels over some 50 years have included places where few typical travelers venture. And as Pico writes about his experiences in places as far-flung as Iran, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, North Korea, the Australian bush, and mountainside temples in Japan, he shares a thoughtful perspective that might help us recognize paradise wherever we are. Pico joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves from Kyoto in Japan. Pico, thanks for being with us. Oh, such a pleasure to be with you again, Rick. Thank you. Pico, you've been thinking a lot about paradise lately, and that's something that travelers just seem to crave when they go far away from home. What's your take on the the typical traveler's appetite for paradise? Well, I've always had that typical traveler's appetite. It was especially acute during the pandemic because there I was stuck at home with my 88-year-old mother and Like many of us, I think I started thinking about the places I'd been and 48 years of travel, which were the places that had really moved me. So I think at the best of times, many of us at home caught up in our routine, a longing for paradise and in lockdown, not knowing when we could be on the road again, even more so. So in some ways, it was the perfect time for thinking about the places I'd been that might be considered as paradise and putting them to the test, as it were. So there's some obvious places. I mean, you write about Bali, and if I think of what's paradise, I think of Bali, you know, mangoes and and, and bungalows (laughs) and flowers and angelic dancers. Uh, But you find there's always a sort of a paradox when you finally get there. Yes, of course. If it is the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is the place with the serpent and, and the fatal apple. And just as you say, I remember the first time I traveled to Bali. I was living in New York City, got into a plane, suddenly arrived in this $2 a night cottage down the road from the beach and beautiful people bringing me, as you say, fresh fruit and tea and my terrace and this golden sunshine. This is heaven. But of course, it wasn't necessarily heaven for the people around me because they were working very hard to make me comfortable. And I was coming from New York City, which is probably a place that they would see as as paradise. So 
I think paradise is very much in the eye of the beholder. And one of the interesting things about it is my vision of paradise probably will never be exactly yours. <laughs> you know, that's so true. And it's paradise is often, it's sort of like the other person's grass is always greener. Yes, and, and the, I think that's one reason sometimes I love trying to look at my hometown through foreign eyes or showing a visitor around my hometown. I remember during the pandemic, because I couldn't travel, I would start taking walks along the road behind my mother's house. And occasionally it'd be early in the morning, there'd be golden light coming up over the mountains. I'd turn around, I'd see the Pacific Ocean in the distance sparkling in the clear air. And I would think, my heavens, this is as beautiful as anything I'd go across the world to see in Cape Town or Rio de Janeiro. Here it is in my own backyard. And until the pandemic came, I'd never thought to walk to the end of the road behind my mother's house, though she'd been there for 50 years. So Isn't that, that's just very thought-provoking, that paradise can be hiding out. You were talking about Bali, and I remember my time in Bali in a $2 thatched hut. I remember so charmed by the restaurants, uh, the menu, and all the exotic fruits that I, I asked them if I could keep the menu, and I still have that menu because it had fruits on it that I never encountered and I have yet to see since. And I remember when it got dark, walking through the the dirty lanes, and then all of a sudden there was mean dogs. In the distance, there was like a, a pagoda kind of structure where they had a gamelan orchestra playing. And it was just thriving, all those xylophones pounding away. And it was just like sort of a heavenly train rhythm. You know, and I just didn't know if this is, you know, with the dog and with the darkness and with the gamelan, it was sort of a mix. It was It was heaven and hell at the same time. Oh, Rick, exactly. I remember those dogs barking in the night in the back streets of Bali and a very spooky sound yeah. of the gamblers, as you say. And the people who are performing these beautiful dances are in a trance, They're sometimes simulating the great legendary battle of black magic and white there. And I remember probably I was at Bali around the, the first time around the same time as you. And I'd walked down the little streets and they were all selling masks. And so many of the masks were of gods or spirits or demons much too charged for me to buy. But finally, I saw this little red, yellow, green mask of an owl. I thought this is very innocent. It looks like a perfect thing for a goddaughter. So I bought it and I took it back home to New York City. And as soon as I got back home, I put the mask on the wall and it was so powerful. I had to take it down and put it away and never look at it again. It just reminded me that there's more going on in these cultures than the typical visitor can read. And and it, it's really magnetic and packs a powerful and That's charge. important for us to remember as people in search of paradise, that paradise, when you get there, uh, the more you know about it, the more reality sinks in. You know, the title of your book, Pico, The Half-Known Life, can you explain to us what the half-known life is? Yes, I think it has two parts. And the first I know you and I have spoken about before, which is my feeling that in this age of information, we actually know less about the world than ever before. And sometimes we know least of all about the countries we hear most about. Cuba, Iran, North mm -hmm. Korea, they're always in our headlines. And yet when we hear those names, we just see one face. We just know a little bit about our, their economy, but so little about daily life and, and regular folks. Beneath that, though, I, as I get older, come to think that the most important parts of our lives come from things that we can't begin to explain. Mm. Suddenly, 
you fall in love. Suddenly you walk out onto a terrace outside a temple in Tibet and you're rendered speechless. Suddenly your husband's down in a fire, as happened to me. Suddenly a pandemic locks down the entire world. And I think we're almost defined by what we do with what we can't explain. And really the powerful things in life, love, faith, terror, wonder, those dances you were just describing in Bali, they're all outside our reach, which makes them so fascinating, but sometimes unsettling too. I love that idea of a useful humility. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed by emotions and I don't even know where it came from. And, you know, it relates to faith, it relates to love, it relates to fear, and maybe... Part of our challenge is just being comfortable with the fact that a lot of life lies beyond our grasp. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of travel. It, it humbles me every single time, in every way. And I know that when I'm sitting at home, I think about Iran or, or Cuba or Bali. I think I know it all. I'm on top of things. I've followed the newspaper. I've listened to your show. I, I know everything about them. And then as soon as I get off the plane in Damascus yes. or Havana or Tehran, I see I don't know a thing. This is... Everything interesting about those places is what I hadn't known about, and that's what makes it exciting. I'm with you, and I was just, when you were talking about that, remembering my first trip to Japan. Japan so befuddled me. In fact, <laughs> it so befuddled me that people made a habit of looking at me and seeing there's a very befuddled person, and they would always help me. I just looked like a man that needed help, and I enjoyed it. I laughed at myself. I didn't know if it was the in or the out or how to eat this or what to do with that. And it was sort of a playfulness that I stopped trying to be in control and I just enjoyed people's friendliness. I enjoyed the being steep on the learning curve. I enjoyed my stumbles. And it made Japan one of my favorite places to explore. And I, I've never quite put my finger on it until right now. And the beauty of Japan, as you know, is it's endlessly befuddling and bewildering beyond our grasp. I've been here 35 years now. And I do, in many ways, feel I know less than when I arrived. I remember the first time I came to Japan, 1985, I wrote a 40-page article explaining everything about Japan. And now yeah. I've actually lived here for 35 years. Ah. I could barely manage a haiku, which I like about ah. it. Too. I read that book and I thought, oh, Pico, you made it so easy. But now you tell me, oh, it's not quite that easy. No, I, I was really yeah. writing from the position of a bewildered foreigner. And in this book, The Half-Known Life, one conscious thing I try to do is in almost every chapter, I'm in the passenger seat being led around by a local. And that's to remind me just of what you said, that I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm not in control. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's why I love traveling. Pico Iyer pulls together observations and life lessons from his nearly 50 years of roaming the world, sometimes to places where others feared to tread. It's the focus of his latest book, called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. It's even been called A Guided Tour of the Human Soul. Pico's a best-selling author of more than a dozen books, and his articles appear in Time magazine and in the New York Times. His TED Talks have received millions of views. His website is PicoIerJourneys.com. And Iyer is spelled I-Y-E-R. It's interesting that when we think of paradise, a lot of times it's tranquility, it's peacefulness, it's just calmness. But when I think of my favorite places, they are chaotic places. And I don't know why my paradise is chaos. It might have something to do with people and the commotion and the conviviality of people coming together. But India is, I think, my favorite country. And in Europe, it is Italy. 
And in Italy, you know, they celebrate their chaos. They call it bella chaos, the beautiful chaos. Uh, you know, paradise maybe doesn't have to be a perfect never-never land that is so tranquil and, and, and peaceful. I love that idea because really the paradise you can find in the middle of real life is a paradise you can trust, the kind of paradise you find in the chaos of India or amidst the tumult of, of Italy. Because I sometimes find, as we've been saying, I will sit along a golden beach on a sunny day. Of course, this is paradise. But the sunshine only lasts for 10 hours. And the next day, maybe I'll get sick or there'll be 100 people on that beach so a paradise that is based on beautiful circumstances is probably pretty fragile and not really open to everybody. But a paradise you can find in the middle of crowded Varanasi is one that I have faith in. There you go. The paradise where everything's great and you got your masseuse on the beach and your fresh-squeezed juice. Somebody's working really hard, probably at, at subpar wages to bring that to you. It's not quite as paradisical as it might seem. But to be in there in Varanasi... Oh, my goodness, you wrote about that in this book so vividly. Of all the places in India, you know, you wrote about the holy city of Hinduism, the river Ganges as it flows through Varanasi. Can you take us down to the river and explain to us what we're going to experience? I can. I mean, Varanasi, as, as you know, and anybody who's been to India knows, is the single most intense, shocking, displacing city in the whole of shocking, intense, displacing India. To the north and to the south, as you stand along the holy river Ganges, there are flames burning through the day and through the night, reducing dead bodies to ash and bones. And when you walk through the little narrow lanes of the old city, people are permanently racing through, singing with joy as they carry the dead bodies of their loved ones to commit to the flames or to the holy waters. There are, as you remember, ascetics walking around completely naked except smeared with ash who are living in graveyards and drinking from skulls to convey their indifference to conventional morality. And there are also lots of people washing and sometimes drinking in the holy waters, the holy waters that contain, according to the WHO, 3,000 times more fecal bacteria than is safe for human consumption. So it's a wild scene crazy as it is, this is where devout Hindus want to go to end their life and escape into some kind of paradise. I mean, Hindus believe those people who are burned and cremated there, that will free them from the cycle of rebirth, right? Exactly. It's liberation. And one of the things that's, again, humbling and eye-opening there is that the city of death really is a city of joy, as everyone is, is experiencing shouting with praise and, and thanksgiving to be there. And it's interesting, too, because I am Indian by, by birth on both sides. I'm 100% Hindu by birth. And yet even I am sort of freaked out by this place, but moved to see everybody so jubilant to be in the midst of this chaos. Pico, I think one of your, part of the magic juice you have as a travel writer is you're a very spiritual person, I feel, but you're not exclusively one faith. And you can see the road as church as well as the road as a playground. And I've been kind of exploring that idea because when you're travelers, you can be a tourist, you can be a traveler, or you can be a pilgrim. And I think it's fun to mix it all together. Tell me a little bit about how your interest in spiritual issues sort of um, makes your writing more insightful, I, th I would say. 
Well, thank you, Rick. I, I, I want to steal that phrase about Rhoda's church because it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think one reason all of us leave home is that at home, as I said before, we think we knew it, know it all. Our days are very planned out. As soon as we're in the middle of the unknown, we're in this presence of these things that we can't understand. I find I trust people much more mm-hmm. when I'm in a foreign place than when I'm at home. I'm kinder when I'm on the streets of Varanasi and I see somebody extending a hand. I'll give her time and maybe help the way I wouldn't when I'm in my busy life in, in yeah. California. And I believe much more when I'm traveling because I see so much that, that confounds belief and that I can't begin to explain. Yes. Uh, I live much more in a sort of rational, logical world when I'm at home. So I love the way that travel opens us up to wonder and therefore to kind of an understanding of... I think it, it makes us small. It, it enables us to get closer to God. It helps us see everybody as children of God and therefore brothers and sisters. And when we travel, we get to know the family. And that's not unique to any particular religion. I mean, think of the importance the Hajj has in the teachings of Muhammad. That's one of the five pillars of Islam, is you're supposed to go on a pilgrimage, um, ideally to Mecca, but not necessarily to Mecca. And I think the idea is get away from your home and uh, realize you can learn more about yourself and your home by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. And joining all the fellow travelers who are walking in the same direction with the same motivation, learning about community, I think. And exactly as you say, for example, I love going to Jerusalem. I'm not Muslim, I'm not Christian, and I'm not Jewish, but there are many places in that town for all its conflicts that move me to tears. I think places have a magnetism, as people do, and they have a a power beyond our comprehension. Mm. And places like Varanasi and Jerusalem, partly because of 2,000 years of worship and pilgrims, but also just because of what they are, take us out of ourselves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with author Pico Iyer. And Pico examined some of the world's most potent holy sites in his latest book, The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise. You can find links to Pico's work in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. And you can learn more about Pico from his website. It is picoirejourneys.com. Pico, you wrote that as we grow more and more connected, we're becoming more and more divided. That's so insightful. I've been lucky enough to spend 48 years talking and traveling with the Dalai Lama. And it's so interesting, this most respected of religious figures wrote a book called Beyond Religion, because he sensed that even religion was dividing us the way our political positions do at a time when humanity really is sharing more than ever before. And you and I have the chance to experience cultures firsthand the way our grandparents couldn't have imagined. So I think it's up to us as travelers to find what unites us and not hide behind the doctrines or dogmas that divide. Mm. You know, I've been wrestling with traveling in a, in a warming world and the ethics of travel and so on. And I think a big part of that is the stewardship of when we travel to get something out of it. Your niche is to inspire us to to give meaning to our travels. You wrote, travel has meaning only if it changes something within. Let's just wrap up our conversation, Pico Iyer, with uh, your advice for how we can enjoy truly transformational travel. As you said, I think just leave your assumptions at home. Know that you can learn from anybody and hope that you will come back a different person from the one who left. That's really my one criterion. I want to come back somewhat different mm-hmm. than the Pico of two weeks ago. And for me, that is the most beautiful souvenir. Pico Iyer, thank you for joining us. Best wishes with your travels and sharing the lessons of your travels. Thank you, Rick. Always such a pleasure. 
You can listen to Pico Iyer's earlier visits with us on Travel with Rick Steves from our show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. European cities weren't always as easy to bike or walk around as many of them are today. City planning consultant Jeff Speck explains what he's been advising cities in North America to do to reduce pedestrian fatalities and to make their cities as enjoyable and people-friendly as the places we fly thousands of miles to visit. Explore what it takes to be a walkable city. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ask an American about their recent trip to a European city, and the common response is, it was great, we walked everywhere. Americans might go to a European city for the art or the history, the food or the people, but chances are they'll also enjoy its pedestrian-friendly urban cores, efficient mass transit, and inviting public squares. And when they return home, they might wonder why we don't do that here where we live. Jeff Speck is an urban planner who has dedicated his career to determining what makes a city a place where people can thrive. And he's boiled it down to one key factor, walkability. In his book, Walkable City, he contends that not only can we turn more American cities into good places to walk, it's also essential. Jeff, thanks for being here. Hey, Rick, it's my pleasure. It's a real honor to be on your show. Well, thanks, Jeff. And I want to get right into this exciting topic because so many travelers wonder, come on, let's wake up, let's learn from Europe, and so on. And uh, you mentioned in a recent poll, the most walkable cities were Boston, San Francisco, Barcelona, Amsterdam, Prague, Paris, and New York. Uh, When you think about those cities, Jeff, what do they have in common? Well, you know, they may be better or worse uh, tourist destinations. Most of them are great. But what they have is what I would call fabric. They have just the everyday shaping of space around streets, small blocks, small streets. And it's not so much the monuments, which are, you know, great to visit, Mm -hmm. but it's the space between the monuments, how well it's shaped, and whether it is organized really around the human body. Uh, as opposed to some other thing, like, for example, the automobile. One thing that America has dealt with that European cities don't necessarily is uh, those cities were built before there was cars, and our cities were built basically to accommodate cars. Isn't that kind of a a fundamental challenge that we have in America, is that we have car-designed cities? Yeah, so I grew up loving cars. I mean, I guess I still do love certain cars. And it took me a long time to realize that, that actually when it comes to city planning, which is my profession, uh, cars are the problem. We design our cities around cars, and they are no longer uh, good cities to live in. The best American cities uh, still have cars in them. I like to say that, that cars moving slowly are the lifeblood of the typical American city still. But it's that moving slowly that's really important. And, of course, accepting cars in the proper measure. One thing we've learned you know, after 50 years, is that cars behave like water. They take the amount of space that you give to them. Mm. And actually, if you organize your city around cars, you end up with a car city. If you organize your city around uh, people and places, you end up with a people and places city. And it's a choice we make as we design and grow our cities, whether we want to try to satisfy the automobile or become a place more where people want to be uh, outside of the automobile. The kind of hidden secret of city planning that's a little counterintuitive is just that cars are not possible to satisfy, that the equilibrium that we experience in congestion is an equilibrium, and that as you widen streets or build more streets or build new highways in order to uh, alleviate traffic, what you really do is just invite more traffic. Somebody once reminded me, if you took all of the 
miles that you drive in a car, apart from big cross-country trips or something like that, but for getting around, and you divided it by how many hours you spent working to be in the car, to park the car, to pay for the car, to keep up the car, to fill the gas tank, you would not get that many miles per hour or per dollar. You're actually quoting even Illich, who was this uh, multinational intellectual, I believe early in the 20th century, who talked about if you add up the amount of time it takes to pay for your car as well as to the amount of time that you're spending stuck in traffic, basically you're moving at pedestrian speed. Yeah, and that's just something that we need to kind of think about. And what you make a point in your book, The Walkable City, is that transportation is actually becoming a growing percent of the income of people who rely on cars. I mean, every year, it's a bigger percent of how much money we have is invested in getting around, I suppose, because uh, the cost of real estate is driving people away from where they work and where they shop. And like you said, if you rely on the car more, you're going to use the car more. And it's the way our cities have been organized. So in the 70s, we spent 10 cents out of every dollar on transportation. Now, 20 cents out of every dollar we earn, we're spending on transportation. Poor people are spending as much on transportation as they are on housing. And uh, some poor people are spending 40% of their income on transportation. Wow. You also have this condition in, in America that's kind of a newer development, which I call the suburbanization of poverty, where basically poor people uh-huh. now have been forced out into the suburbs. And you have the additional challenge, which is the suburban parts of our cities were designed around the presumption that everyone would be driving everywhere all oh. the time. And these folks don't have cars. And that's why, shockingly, we have an 82% increase in pedestrian deaths over the last 14 years. People are living in places where they have to walk, but they aren't supposed to walk in those places. And then, uh, just to get a little more technical, the rise of the SUV in the U.S. has been a huge contributor to that number. In Europe, pedestrian deaths have been declining steadily. They have cell phones like we do, but they don't have the SUVs that we have or the street design standards that we have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jeff Speck, who's helping us explore how we might design our cities as better places for us to walk. Jeff is a city planner and the author of a book called Walkable City. Jeff's TED Talks and his YouTube videos have been viewed by millions of people. You can find out more about his work at jeffspeck.com. Jeff, reading through your book, I came upon ideas that never even occurred to me. Like you mentioned, the size of a block really shapes how walkable a place is. Uh, Smaller is more walkable and bigger is less walkable. There's no greater measure of a city's walkability than what we planners call intersection density. (laughs) It's amazing (laughs) to look at Rome, uh, which has 10 times the intersections per square mile as the typical American city. And then look at sprawl, like a place like Irvine, California, right, or or, uh, Scottsdale. And that has blocks that are 10 times as big as the typical American city. Uh, A wonderful comparison is Salt Lake City to Portland. And they were both built at the same time, but Portland, Oregon has 200-foot blocks and is delightfully walkable. Salt Lake City is tough to walk around. It's got 600-foot blocks. And actually, you always end up walking the same way from one thing to another. You never get to see very much, and there's only one path when you have these big blocks Of course, another factor is the bigger the blocks are, the bigger the streets end up being. So the typical street in Portland is two lanes. The typical street in Salt Lake is six lanes. It really doesn't feel comfortable walking on. So when I drive in different communities here in the United States, sometimes it seems to me that they've intentionally made the roads slower and narrower in urban neighborhoods with islands and roundabouts and uh, more parking and tighter lanes. And I guess that's intentional, isn't it? That's an effort to what? Yeah, that's, that's a 
recent development in the U.S., they've been doing it in uh, Europe since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, in a typical year around 1970, 500 children were killed in traffic in the Netherlands. And mothers and other family members created this movement called Stop to Kindermord, right? Kindermord, mm. death of children. Oh, yeah. And they got it down to like six kids a year. I mean, it was amazing what they accomplished. And what they realized was that actually street design determined the uh, safety of streets because there's no greater factor in the mm-hmm. uh, danger of a collision than the speed of the vehicle. And so what right. they do intentionally in Europe, this is going to sound a bit preposterous to your listeners because it seems like common sense, but it's common sense that we ignore in America. In Europe, the goal is to to remove elbow room, to remove that forgiving lack of friction mm-hmm. that causes people to speed. In the U.S., mm-hmm. the engineering standards are all about forgiveness. They're all about uh, designing for the drunk at midnight and trying to create ah. a condition in which the, the fellow or gal will never crash their car, what that does, with the exceptions that you note, but in most American places, what that does is it creates speeds that are in the 30s or higher, as opposed to in the 20s. A car traveling 35 is seven times as likely to kill you as a car traveling 25. So these factors are huge. Another interesting issue is bikes and bike infrastructure. You can't just say, let's all bike. You have to invest in bike infrastructure. And a lot of times when I look at bike infrastructure, I think, well, that is a nice effort, but half as many cars can use this street now. But I guess that's not the reason they put the bike infrastructure in there. You know, I'm not just a writer. I do a lot of actual plans for cities. And the biggest struggle, of course, is doing anything to reduce what we call the throughput of vehicles. And we're very careful, particularly in more conservative communities, to find ways to insert bikes that don't necessarily reduce the amount of road space for cars, or I should say, we find those streets that have the extra room in them. But uh, there's a point at which you have to acknowledge that whenever you make a change to a street that reduces the number of vehicles it can handle, people predict karma, what we call Carmageddon. You know, there's going to be gridlock. Yeah, no one's going right. to be able to get around. Right. What happens is people are smart and they adjust their behavior. And uh, I've worked in a number of schemes where we've actually reduced the vehicular capacity of streets, and there's never been any traffic problem afterwards because people have adjusted. And then all of a sudden, you have a city in which it's, it's better to bike in and better to walk in. This is what the most progressive American cities are starting to realize. Here, here in Boston, under Mayor Wu, there's uh, a decision that most other cities aren't making, that actually in places that are well-transit-served, that have bike facilities, uh, that are walkable, there's no mandate to maintain the amount of traffic in a city because car traffic is nowhere near as economically productive as foot traffic or bike traffic. Boy, you know, Europe is my beat, and I've seen it evolve in the last generation, and it has been a very gradual but very, very definitive evolution from congested with cars and full of pollution and noise to now you've got more green spaces, you've got more bikes, you've got more pedestrians, you've got better transit, and you can hear the birds. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, somebody will say, and I'm inclined to say, oh boy, that's going to make drivers angry. And people who get it go, well, yeah, that's kind of the purpose. uh, Well, you know, uh, Paris, uh, Mary Doggo, who you're probably familiar with, you're reminding me of her because uh, during the lockdown for COVID, she had this quote where she said, we could breathe, we could hear the birds. If it could be like this always, how pleasant this could be. And uh, she's made amazing investments before that and after that, uh, 870 miles of new bike lanes, uh, removing cars from the Rive Droite and the, the Rue de Rivoli, getting rid of tens of thousands of, of parking spaces. 
and this is stuff that has its opponents. And of course, if you mm-hmm. propose this in the U.S., you get you get shown the door. But it is possible to make changes like this, and more and more cities around the world, and even in the U.S., are are heading in that direction without any of the predicted Carmageddon that we fear. You know, every time I I have the opportunity in my little town here north of Seattle, Edmonds, we have a fountain in the main intersection, Main Street and Fifth Avenue. It's now with cars going around it all the time. And then we have a charming old town, which is um, dominated by traffic and parking. And every time I think out loud, you know, we could make this um, a piazza where the fountain is, and we could have four blocks of pedestrian zone and then a periphery road, a, a road around the square, I've been doing this just like once a decade for 30 years, and my neighbors, I'm, I'm a pretty likable guy, and I've got yeah, a lot of I was going to say, I become like a, you, Rick. <laughs> I, but I'm a, I'm, I become a very unpopular person in the town. People say, well, if you like that so much, go back to Europe. People are really threatened by well, this traffic Well, you know, the, the solution thing. in a lot of places is what we call tactical urbanism, which is to give it a try. Yeah. Like, just lay down some cones, throw some chairs in the middle of the street, some potted plants, uh, Jeanette Sadek Khan, who was Bloomberg's transportation commissioner a number of years ago, that was the first step in transforming Times Square in New York. They didn't ask anyone's permission. They just came ah. in overnight mm-hmm. and they tried it. And of course, there's a bit of mayhem for the first uh, few hours or maybe the first day that right. you see how it works. You know, yeah. sometimes it won't work. There were a lot of streets pedestrianized in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s, about 200, all but about 20 of them failed. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pedestrianize streets. It means that we should test it out before we build it. Mm-hmm. One of the items urban consultant Jeff Speck includes in his planner's pledge for making cities pedestrian-oriented is to create a framework in which walking is truly useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. Jeff's book, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, is updated now in a 10th anniversary edition. You can see photos of projects Speck and Associates have designed for cities, nonprofits, and private developers from Tampa to Cedar Rapids at jeffspeck.com. Jeff, that I found interesting in in Europe, especially I'm thinking the Netherlands, is you know there's more two-wheeled vehicles than four-wheeled vehicles yep. on the streets of any Dutch town, and they rely on transit. But a transit, uh, you know, a train ride or a bus ride or a tram ride often starts and finishes with a bike ride. Mm -hmm. And you can bike to the train station, leave your bike there, take the train into town, and then pick up a bike and get to where you want to go. It needs to be kind of a a general cohesive plan if you're going to commit yourself to bike travel. But once you do, it's just the people's choice. Have you seen the parking garages they have for bikes in some of those cities? Thousands and thousands of bikes. Yeah, I was in Copenhagen on the Strog. Okay. Uh, which is their mile-long uh, pedestrian zone that's actually expanded yeah. beyond that street. I was trying to get some good pictures, but I couldn't get any good pictures because there were just piles of bikes everywhere that I was looking. Yeah. But I was on that same street, and I looked around. I met a guy who was walking around with a plywood cutout the size of a car, mm. wearing it on his shoulders. And he's walking down the street, taking as much space as a car as he walks to make this point. And he's reminding people that if everybody had a car, we wouldn't even fit on this street. Well, you know, that's reminiscent of those six-foot hoops that we had people wearing during COVID, right, to demonstrate. Oh, that's right. And and, and someone commented that, you know, the automobile is the ultimate social distancing machine, (laughs) in fact. Really? When I saw that guy with that that cutout of a car, I looked around on the same street you're talking about in Copenhagen. I must have saw 100 bicycles 
and they just melted into the environment to me. Had there been 100 cars there, it would have been the congestion that we're used to as the norm here in our country. Well, I think it's just important to acknowledge, and you know, we're both old enough to remember in the 70s, the Netherlands and other places in, in Northern Europe, they were as choking on cars as we were. Oh, yeah. I mean, people say, oh, we're not the Netherlands. Well, in fact, the, the Netherlands were at one point not the Netherlands. You know, It was Holland, yeah. and it was full of cars. All of those great squares that we enjoy today, they used to be packed with cars. Yeah, Almost in Italy as well, and many still are in Italy, in fact. Oh, yeah. Another thing you bring up in your book, Jeff, is just the health issue. If you have a, a healthy walking society, people are just flat out in better shape. They live longer. I say, you know, as a city planner, we've been arguing for more walkable cities for a long time, but we've had a, you know, difficulty convincing people. And I always say the best day to be a city planner was August 7th, 2004, when a book came out called Urban Sprawl and Public Health. And Uh here you had three epidemiologists telling us that the reason that we had the first generation of Americans who were expected to live shorter lives than their parents Mm. was because we had engineered out of existence the useful walk. In our the cities. useful walk. Diet matters, but it's calories in and calories out. And we're no longer active because walking no longer serves a purpose for most of us. You know, we have in- to get in a plane and go to Europe to walk around when walking is actually useful or biking is useful. In your book, you actually were talking about the useful walk. I like the phrase. It was a useful walk versus environmental-induced inactivity. Yeah, that's a technical, you know, epidemiologist's <laughs> phrase. But they're, they're basically saying, you know, our environment is the cause of our obesity and other, of course, related illnesses. We're out of time. I could talk forever about this, Jeff, but it's so fun to think that we have this opportunity to learn from Europe and make our cities more walkable. Uh, Jeff Speck is the author of Walkable City. And Jeff, if we could just cap this conversation with one point, I'd like you to Tell us which American city you think gets it right in this regard and why. Well, the cities that have made the most progress are near you in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Lately, Portland and Seattle have done a ton. But I have to say that if you want to be technical about it, you know, New York City has more subway stops than all other cities put together in America. And that is why it is a city in which most people aren't driving. Most people are taking the train and then walking or biking the most walkable places technically are the densest places and the places that have the best transit service. That's a whole separate point from the fact that I love to go and walk around the great southern cities of Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans. These places were, you know, as you said, like in Europe, built before the automobile. The automobile did not ream them out, and they're wonderful places to, to spend time. But, you know, almost every American city that's older than the modern era has neighborhoods like this, and you can visit them, and you can even live in them. Jeff, my hunch is a generation from now we'll look around and and notice how how hip we are in this regard, and we'll wonder what took us so long. Jeff Speck, the book is Walkable City. Thanks for joining us. Hey, really, my pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person and cut through all the superlatives to give you hard and smart opinions based on decades of experience. 
Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.